All right, so here we are, Romans 13, right? Romans 13, verse 6. Let me just two verses here. Uh, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, uh, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, you, if you've been with us, you know we've been working our way through these first seven verses for quite some time now in Romans 13, because we want to understand as best we can our responsibilities as believers to government. Now, obviously, we're living in, in uh, times where our government, and really governments all around the world, are, are, are really volatile. There's all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems, all kinds of chaos uh, everywhere. And with all, with all of that comes all kinds of people yelling and shouting uh, with all kinds of attitudes and, and the, the worldly voices towards authority. And I think it's difficult at times for us as believers not to get caught up into all the rhetoric. So we need to think carefully on, on government. How are we to think about government? from a biblical perspective, not, not from the perspective of the world, because we're in the world, but we're not what? Of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. And, and I've said numerous times, we're really citizens of two kingdoms. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and citizens of the kingdom uh, of men. So how do we live as citizens of two kingdoms? How do we live in a fallen world? How do we live and, and relate in this fallen world with the issue of authority? And as I kind of said a little bit last time, uh, how, how do we live in a fallen uh, world and relate to authority over us where everything increasingly has departed from biblical values and, and a biblical worldview? Uh, how do we understand our responsibility where basically all the problems in the world uh, stem from two things? That would be sin and Satan. How do you live in a world and relate to authority where all men are desperately wicked, where there's none righteous, no, not one, where the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? Uh, where Satan has a dominion and authority over men and over nations in this world. And he does everything he can to excite the sinfulness of fallen men, uh, even uh, rulers and governments, uh, rulers of, uh, of uh, certain um, uh, principalities or certain, certain uh, kingdoms, if you will. And, and we looked at that last time from several different passages of Scripture. I showed you that there really is, the, there are earthly rulers and there really is a, a, a satanic uh, realm uh, Satan and his dominion and, and his authorities uh, uh, exercise in the background, if you will, over both men and nations. So, so the issues in a fallen world are complex, they're great, they're many, uh, but the core of the problem is not political. I just think we've got to be reminded of that. The core of the problem is what? It, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. You, you, let, you go vote because you should because you're in a country that gives you that privilege, but uh, the the problem the problems aren't aren't political. They're not going to be solved that way. And, and again, I think we just have to fundamentally hold on to the reality: the core problems are spiritual, and they have to be dealt with that level. Uh, Ephesians uh, six twelve, Paul says, "Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places." That's where the battle is. So we've been left in this world with this battle that's going on around us. We've been left in this spiritually dark, satanically oppressed world to represent Christ. We can't forget that one either. Second uh, Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors of Christ. Now, again, I, I've said this to you before, but an ambassador is one who represents the sovereign from the nation by which he's been sent. An ambassador doesn't appoint himself. An ambassador is someone who's been called by the sovereign of that nation, the king, the president, whatever, the sovereign. He's been appointed. He has been sent. 
Therefore, an ambassador has no right to speak on his own initiative or speak for himself. He's been called and commissioned and appointed to speak on behalf of the nation, to speak on behalf of the sovereign who has sent him to this other realm. And we understand as followers of Christ, we've been chosen by Christ, uh, sent by him, appointed by him with one message from the sovereign to the world. And the message from the sovereign to the world is God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. All right, again, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our purpose. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's our message. We must make sure that we don't get sidetracked from our purpose, from our mission, from our message. I do not think it's an overstatement to say that perhaps there has uh, been no other time in the history of the church where Christians have been so preoccupied by the things of the world. I don't think that's an overstatement. Whether it be material pleasures or political maneuvering or any other characteristic of the day and time in which we presently live. Uh, again, sadly, perhaps there's no other time in the history of Christianity that Christians on a whole have been so caught up with and preoccupied with the temporal the things of this world, and really show little to no concern for the eternal. Little concern for holiness and virtue and the spiritual well-being of themselves and others. Little concern uh, for those who are lost. No more time in the history of uh, Christianity, I think, have things been so desperate as they are now because we are so caught up with temporal things versus eternal things. And I would say... Uh, at the same time, there's perhaps no point more prevalent, at least in my observation of the history of the church, the church has been seen as so completely irrelevant in modern life in our country and in around the world. Most of the people of the time in which we live believe that the church or Christianity, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, has absolutely nothing to offer them, has absolutely nothing to say in their life. Going to church or reading your Bible or praying or singing hymns, etc. and so forth. Uh, who in the world does that anymore? Those are activities of a bygone day, a bygone era. What, what does that have to do with anything for modern man? That's what the world says and asks. What, what does the church uh, again have to offer? And for most people in the world, they'd say nothing. That, that's their view of the church. So there's an ignorance in the world concerning the message and the meaning and the purpose and the function of the Christian church uh, in, in the world. And therefore, sadly, I think there's also an ignorance of the message and the meaning and the purpose and the function of the Christian church within the church itself. Again, I think especially in the modern world, the church gets very easily sidetracked again by temporal things and forgets the eternal. It's very easy for the church to get caught up in all kind of political activism, if you will in an attempt to try to, quote-unquote, change the culture or to try to, quote-unquote, Christianize the culture, uh, when biblically that's not our mandate. So again, when we're talking about government and our role as Christians, I think we just desperately have to make sure we have our priorities right, that we have a clear understanding of our calling, our mission, our message, and we do everything for the Lord's sake. Right? We, have, we do everything for the Lord's sake and for His glory. We understand that neither politics nor government is the answer to the world's problems, uh, again, the, the problems in this world aren't political. They're what? They're spiritual. Therefore, listen to me. Only Jesus Christ has the answer to this world's problems. Okay, only Jesus Christ has the answer to this world's problems. It's only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that offers uh, the change that men's hearts desperately need. Men who are evil, men who are 
sinful to the very core of their being. And we have to keep that always in the forefront of our mind as we're thinking about these issues of, uh, of God and government or Christians and, and government and our relationship to it. And this conversation, particularly here in, in Romans that, chapter 13, really begins back in chapter 12. If you want to look there just quickly at the top of the chapter, just so you can remember. How, how do we relate to authority? Well, again, it really flows out of the top of chapter 12 where it says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Remember, it was 11 chapters of theological truths concerning what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then you come to chapter 12, and the top of that chapter, that's the first major imperative in the book. So in light of what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, therefore, you have to stop and consider how we live. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So everything we do in this life as believers must be seen through the lens of God's kindness to us through Christ. Everything. Even how we relate to authority over us. Everything we do must be for his sake and for his glory. Again, realizing whatever impact we uh, may make on a temporal level in this world pales in comparison to the eternal good uh, that we can be a part of in the lives of men and women around us as we, again, uh, set aside the issues of contemporary time and try to help them focus on the matters of eternity. And I think we always, uh, at the same time, need to be realizing that somebody is watching us. We got the, the fact that God in heaven is always watching us, but I think men in, in the unbelieving world no matter what they may say about Christ or the church, I think they're always watching us to see if we actually live out who we say we are. If you make a claim to Christ, I think people are always watching to see if the way we live uh, matches up the message uh, that, that we say we proclaim. They want to know if our message is genuine. They want to know if there's something different about us than them. And again, if there's nothing fundamentally different about us as believers on how we relate to government, how we relate to authority, than the unbelieving world, then there's a problem. Because if we berate and, and uh, complain, uh, rail against government and government officials, complain against uh, our, our taxes and speak poorly of our elected leaders, then how are we fundamentally different from the world around us? Because they do all those kind of things. How is that kind of attitude like the world has towards government and authority, how is that kind of attitude going to give us an opportunity to share the hope we have in the person of Jesus Christ? Uh, so, I, again, I just think, I, I think the issue is one we need to think on deeply and think on always uh, how we interact in the world. And, again, under this heading that we're talking about now, authority and government. And I also said when we were talking about this issue, there may become times, uh, maybe times where we need to, as believers, go to government officials and remind them of their duty, that they need to stay within the bounds that God has given them to operate in because they may be out of line. I mean, as a father in this room, if you allow the government to come into your home and dictate everything that's going to happen to your children, that's a problem. Well, if I say something, they're going to, well, they may do whatever they do. I don't know. But you may have to need to stand up for your kids and say you're not doing that. 
We're not allowing uh, drag screen, screen or drag queen story hour, whatever in the world, or LGBTQ, XYZ, whatever. We're not doing that in our school. You know, I, I'm seeing more and more, and you're seeing it too, I'm seeing more and more students walking out of high schools in the state and around the country saying, we're not going to participate in this nonsense. Boys are boys, girls are girls, boys use the boys' restroom, girls use the girls' restroom. And if the administrators can't figure it out, if the parents won't stand up for what's right, kids are saying, we're just walking out. We need to take a stand for what's right. I, I said it a, a few times back, I don't want to belabor the point, but we just need to be the church. We just need to stand up in the darkness and say, no, this is not right. God calls us to live like this. I'm, I'm sovereign in my own home, not you, government. We're not letting my kid take that vaccine. We're not letting my kid see this or whatever. You know, th this is my realm. And we may have to fight for that because I don't think you're getting away from the encroaching totalitarianism uh, that is out there. That it's coming even more and more in our country. And so we just need to stand up for what's right and let the Lord uh, work on the, on the outcomes. All right. So, uh, again, I think government has to be reminded at times that they're under authority and they're going to give an account for how they have have governed. Now, let's just start, uh, start going forward here a, a little bit in, in verse 6 of uh, chapter 13. Because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all of them what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, we saw last time when we uh, worked through this a little bit, uh, Paul says, uh, pay our taxes, right? There, there's really no qualifier in, in the statement. There's nothing that says, uh, you know, pay your taxes you, if, and there's, just, and there's no if. It just says, pay your taxes. It's just a very straightforward statement. We pay our taxes because government's been ordained by God, and authority comes from him, and rulers are his servants. He has put them in place for the good of people, for the good of man, again, in a fallen world, for the promotion of good, the restraint of evil, for the protection, the preservation of God-given rights and the welfare of people, etc., and so forth. So whether or not the government is good or just or fair or the ruler is good or bad or kind or evil, that's really not the issue. The issue is that we have to understand that, that public officials are performing an act of service to God because, again, government is ordained by God. So again, the ruler is not the issue so much as God is the issue. God is the sovereign over the entire world. God is sovereign over everyone in the entire world. Satan does and may exercise a certain amount of authority and dominion, but it's limited. Right? It wasn't it Luther that said uh, uh, God, the devil is God's devil? Right? He's on a leash. He, he doesn't have a carte blanche authority to do whatever. God is the sovereign. God is the absolute sovereign. And God in his sovereignty uses even wicked rulers and unjust rulers for his good purposes, for his own glory and to bring salvation to his elect. You need to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ himself to prove that point when you see how unjustly he was treated by both the religious uh, leaders and the uh, civil governing authorities. And then you see how God used uh, those wicked men and the greatest injustice that has ever occurred in the world, the murder of the innocent Lord Jesus Christ, again, the greatest evil under the sun, and you see how he and his sovereign purposes, he worked out his good plan. God worked out his good plan, his sovereign plan for his glory, for the good of those whom he calls to himself through Christ. So again, we need to keep our focus on Christ. We need to keep our focus on the Lord, not on circumstances, not on wicked men, not on wicked governments and, or governors. 
Not in this thing or that thing we don't like. Or this thing or that thing we don't think is fair. Or this thing or that thing that is unfair. We need to keep our focus on Christ. And then, and then pray that God would give us understanding of how we might be able to continue again to represent him well in a fallen world. And something that perhaps uh, we don't do enough. We need to pray for our earthly rulers. I mean, what other kind of rulers are there going to be in this world except fallen ones? What, what other kind of rulers are there in this world except sinners? Right? We need to pray for our earthly rulers. Paul, 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then, I urge, you, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We need to pray more for our earthly rulers. We, we, we need to pray that men and women uh, would come to, to know Christ. Even earthly rulers would come to know Christ. And, and we need to pray that we would not become a stumbling block to other men and women around us who don't know Christ because of how we perhaps in t- at times improperly uh, respond to authority over us especially in the context of tonight, because uh, the issue is we're going to talk about taxes, and no one that I have met really likes to pay taxes, right? So how do we even deal with that kind of an issue? The issue of taxes, the issue of submission to authority. Uh, again, all of these things with government and rulers over us, whatever they are, whatever level they are, is really our hard attitude. And the question is, how do we respond to it for the Lord's sake? Therefore, because of the mercies of God, right? How, how do I live? How do we live in this fallen world as the way it, it is? How do we respond to people around us in view of God's mercies in our own life? And again, even the issue of paying taxes. Because the way we treat and honor government and government officials, I think, really says a whole lot about our own relationship with the person of Christ. So again, we need to recognize that authority comes from God. We recognize that uh, governing officials are servants. Uh, for God, he's put them there. E- even if they don't recognize his authority, he has still put governing authorities in, in a position to, uh, to serve him, uh, to-, to protect the people, protect the rights, uh, his God-given rights, etc., and so forth. And, and again, every ruler is accountable, right? I mean, men in our own homes, we're going to give an account for how we've, we've ruled, if you will, in our own homes, how, how-, how we raised our kids, how we treated our wives. And we're going to give an account for that. So Paul just says uh, in uh, verse 6, the first uh, four words here, for because of this. And that just means because you understand the context. You understand the, the story. You understand the issue is God. Authority belongs to God because of this. Because authority belongs to God and authority has been delegated uh, from God to men for mankind's good, to promote that which is good and restrain that which is evil. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, Render all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, when you come to the issue of taxes, or when we come to the issue of taxes, what we're really dealing with sub-level is really the issue of money, right? I mean, most people aren't paying their taxes in the room by giving a horse to the government, right? Or chicken or something, right? We're talking about money. How, how do we deal with money? How do we deal with money? How do we look on money? And I would suggest perhaps there's no greater area that it so vividly portrays or discloses the level of our spiritual maturity than how we handle money or our attitude towards money. We're constantly dealing with money. 
So how we deal with it and how we understand it and how we use it really discloses, again, uh, again where our hearts are and, and where our priorities are uh, in our life related to money. Again, Paul said, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and, by some, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. So as followers of Christ, we're not to love money. I mean, what, what's money? It's nothing. It really is nothing, right? It's a piece of paper with an image on it. And men and women are willing to sell their soul or murder someone for a piece of paper because they think that piece of paper is going to get them something they want that they don't currently possess. The love of money is the roots of all sorts of evil. So let's just say it's not. It's coin. It's, it's gold. It's diamond. You know, understand, right? It's, it's just what God has given us in this world to use, but, but how you use it is vital. I th again, I don't think there's anything that really displays where our hearts are than when it comes to this issue of money. We're not to love money. We're not to put our trust in money. First Timothy 6, uh, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited uh, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If you put your trust in money, then you've just become what? You become an idolater. You've just become an idolater. You're guilty of idolatry. What, what supplies all your needs? Or God in heaven? You remember the story as well as I do, you know, in, in, in uh, pre-World War II in Germany when the, in the, when the uh, mark, uh, right, is that the, the, the currency, became absolutely worthless, right? I mean, wheelbarrow loads full of money to buy a piece of bread, you know? <laughs> You've heard the story. That person went inside to buy some bread, left the wheelbarrow load full of money, and they came back out, and the money was all stacked in a pile, and the wheelbarrow was stolen, right? Because the wheelbarrow is more value than those pieces of paper, Right? We need, to, we need to put our, our, our emphasis on God and what God does. He's the one who provides everything we need and everything that we need to enjoy. So when we don't understand money or have the wrong emphasis on money, it's going to be the roots of all sorts of evil. And we see that everywhere around us in the world. And because of that, many men have wandered away from the faith and have caused much grief in their life. Now, let, let's consider, because this is what we're looking at, uh, he says, pay your taxes, right? Because of this, pay your taxes. So let's consider biblically this issue of taxes because it's kind of a, obviously deals with money. It's kind of a sticking point for, for a lot of people. And, and if you remember last week, I said that uh, uh, taxes were originally something instituted by one of God's choice servants. So we're going to get a chance to do a little flipping from spot to spot here. So you want to put a mark there and we'll come back to this eventually here in, in Romans 13. Um, but turn back to the Old Testament. Go to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, um, look at verse 34. <coughs> Genesis uh, 41, verse 34. It says, Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him extract or let him exact a, fi a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. 
So th this is uh, required giving biblically. And, and we'll look through the Bible over the next uh, few times uh, to see God's plan for giving basically comes under two headings, uh, required giving and, and free will uh, giving. And, but for the record, here is uh, the, the first national tax. This is the first required giving. Uh, and here in the beginning, it actually has not to do with money. It's really a, a tax on what is produced. So let me help you remember the story because I kind of jumped right there in the middle. Uh, Joseph, remember, he'd been sold into slavery in Egypt uh, by his brothers. Uh, he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house, and he's wrongly accused by uh, Potiphar's wife, and then he's been sent to prison. While he's in prison, Pharaoh has a dream. Uh, in that dream, there's seven thin cows, seven fat cows. The seven thin cows uh, eat the seven fat cows. Pharaoh wakes up from that dream. He's startled, but he goes back to sleep again. He has another dream. This time, he dreams about seven thin ears of corn or grain and that devour seven fat ears of grain. He wakens from the dream in the morning. He's uh, troubled in spirit. He sends for the magician and the wise men to interpret the dream, but there's no one who can interpret Pharaoh's dream. Somebody remembers there's a guy in prison, a guy named Joseph, uh, who uh, is an interpreter of dreams. Therefore, Pharaoh sends for, send, sends for him. Joseph gets cleaned up, gets shaved, changes his clothes, comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. And Joseph says, both of these dreams really concern the same thing that God is showing Pharaoh, that there's going to come uh, seven years of great abundance, and then seven years uh, after that, there's going to come seven years of famine. And famine's going to ravage the land. Look back up at verse uh, 28 of chapter 41. Genesis 41, verse 28. 41, verse 28. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for repeating the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Verse 34, let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt and the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store, excuse me, up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and then let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt. So the land may not perish during the famine. Uh, again, look up at verse 34. Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Uh, a fifth portion is 20%. So every, everybody in the land is going to be taxed 20% over the next seven years, every year, uh, for, for, uh, of what they produce. So 20% of all their agricultural profit is going to be laid up in store to use during the seven years of famine. And again, this is the first initiation, uh, uh, this is the first initial recorded tax by a, a nation uh, biblically, and it's a pagan nation, it's, it's, uh, it's Egypt. But taxation really is an institution of God. Again, it is begun by God, by one of his choice servants, Joseph, for the advantage of Pharaoh and for Pharaoh's people. Now, of course, it's, I, I originally wrote in my note as a, 
uh, as a side note, but then I went back and said, well, it's really a major side note. Uh, we have to remember who's in Egypt, right? It's not only for Pharaoh in Egypt and the people of Egypt, but in, at this time in the land of Egypt is God's people. And God's people are going to be protected in the nation of Egypt because in them comes the, the seed of the woman, right? In them is the Messiah. So again, you have pagan, wicked nations doing what they do, but God's still behind the scene doing what he's doing. He's preserving his people. So again, God's plan through Joseph was to exact a 20% tax. Collect them during the good years so you can supply the need during the lean years. Look over at uh, verse 53. 41 verse 53. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph said, there was famine, then there was famine in all the land. But all the land of Egypt, in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold it to the Egyptians, and, uh, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the peoples of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. So again, the famine is, is severe, and government is providing what people need. Again, grain to, to make bread, grain to feed themselves, and uh, obviously, uh, the, the government is making a profit uh, from, from this tax. But this is what how God's man, uh, God sent His man to set up to make provision. Turn over to chapter forty-seven, chapter forty-seven, and look at verse thirteen. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they had uh, bought. And, and Joseph uh, bought, uh, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all the livestock that, their, all of their livestock that year. And when that year ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is spent. The cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left for my Lord's except our bodies and our lands. Verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, for, uh, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for uh, every uh, Egyptian sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them, and, and thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them from the cities, from one end of Egypt's border to the other, only the land of the priests. He did not buy. For the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have bought, uh, today uh, bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may go sow the land. Verse 24. And all the harvest 
At, at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be for your own seed for, of the field and for food and for those in your household and food for your little ones. So they said, you've saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, and Pharaoh that would have the fifth only of the land, uh, a fifth, only the land of the priest uh, did not become Pharaoh's. So again, back up there in verse 24. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field, for your food, for those in your household, and for food for your little ones. So Joseph says, look, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to leave you four parts, and I'm going to take one fifth. I'm going to leave you four parts. I'm going to take one fifth. You're going to give it back to me in return. You're going to take some of that seed and you're going to plant it back in the field. Uh, and you're going to take some of that and you're going to eat. And you use, use some of that for your household, some of that for your food for your children. But a fifth portion is going back to Pharaoh. A fifth portion is going back to the government. It's required giving to fund the national government. Now, this tax, a fifth is what? 20%, right? 20% instituted by God through his servant Joseph again. It's a pattern that future governments are going to use so that the resources of the people are going to be, again, collected and distributed back to them when there's a time of, a time of need. Now, not only is government an institution that is ordained by God, but the, but the concept of taxation is also a concept ordained by God. And again, you see it here at the very beginning here in the book of Genesis. Everybody except the priests are going to give 20%. <clears throat> the priests were set aside from uh, paying taxes as much as is even done in our day. Uh, there's some religious workers that have the ability to opt out of certain forms of taxation here even in this country. Uh, but for the most part, 20% is probably pretty close to the base for what most Americans pay in taxes. I know some people pay most, but it's probably pretty, pretty close to the average of the base. Now, this, this happens all the way back uh, before Israel is ever called a nation. This is pagan Egypt. This is pagan Egypt, uh, uh, a nation that doesn't worship God and a nation that doesn't, doesn't know God. But nevertheless, this is the pattern that God is establishing very early on, uh, again, through his servant uh, Joseph uh, in government, that the government collects from the people about a 20% portion. Now, what happens when God establishes, and uh, as time goes on, what happens when God establishes the nation of Israel? Did he have a taxation system for them? And the answer is yes. Turn over to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27. Here, here's the, the taxation system that God had for the nation of Israel. Leviticus 27, uh, starting in verse 30. It says, Thus all the tithe of the land and the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add one-fifth of it. And the word tithe, we understand that, I think, to some extent. It's, it means a tenth part, a payment of a tenth. Uh, so all of the land of uh, Egypt, all of the seed, all the fruit of that, a tenth portion of that is the Lord's. It belongs to him. Here, here again, we're in the nation of Israel. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. So God makes a provision, however, in this text that if you want to keep it, you can keep your uh, grain if you like or your fruit if you like, and then you can just give money instead. Uh, again, that's verse 31. So if you want to keep the, the physical possession and you want to give money to 
pay your tax, that's fine. Just give 20% more and you can keep all of the physical goods if you want. Verse 31, if there is a man who wishes to redeem a part of the tenth, he shall add one-fifth of it. So again, this is 20% tax. The tax was called the Lord's tithe, or sometimes it was known as the Levite's tithe. Now remember who the Levites were. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and the land is divided between the, the tribes. The Levites received no land because they were the priests, right? They were the priests. They attended to the matters of, uh, of worship, and they were to earn their work in matters of worship, not working off the land. So the Levites couldn't support themselves. So the Levites were supported by the people. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to Numbers 18.21. Numbers 18.21. And the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Israel shall not come uh, near the tent of meeting again, lest they bear uh, sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations among the sons of Israel. They shall have no inheritance." For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given it to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. So this taxation, uh, the same kind of taxation that was used in, in Egypt, is the same kind of taxation that God uh, uses in uh, Israel. And again, both, uh, both areas, the priests don't pay a tax. Right? In, in the nation of Israel, people paid the taxes which supported the Levites. Now, why is that? Well, basically, in the nation of Israel, uh, nation of Israel, uh, the, the the Levites or the priests, they basically functioned as the what? The rulers, the rulers, the judges, the leaders of the nation. The chief priests, right, were put in function or put in charge of maintaining the government. Uh, again, as far back as the time of Moses. They were the judges. They were the authorities. They were the rulers. They made the decisions on behalf of the people. And they were supposed to do that, and, and, and they were supported in this theocracy by the Lord's tithe, the 10% that was given back to them every year. Verse 32 of Leviticus 27 goes on, it says, for the, um, And for every tenth part of a herd or a flock, whatever passes under the rod, the, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. It is not to be, it is not, he's not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. So he said, look, you can buy back the seed and the fruit, but you can't buy back the animals. You can't redeem the animals. Those are going to go directly to, the, to support the Levites. Uh, again, because they don't, support, they don't uh, uh, support themselves off the land. So they need this meat. You know, they, they, they need this to go back to them so they can carry out the priestly function that God has for them to carry out the intercession between men and God and then basically the rulers of the nations. Now, what happens if you don't pay the tithe? What happens if you as an individual don't pay the tithe? Well, Micah, or Malachi 3, you're familiar with that. Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? Uh, you say how we've robbed you uh, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me and the whole nation of you. So again, just as there's nothing new under the sun, people back then, just like people now, try not to pay their taxes. They don't want to pay their taxes. They refuse to pay their taxes. But God's saying, look, when you refuse to pay your taxes, you refuse to pay your tithe, you're actually robbing me and you're missing the blessing uh, that I have. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me and know in this, says the Lord of hosts, 
I will not open, or if uh, test me, uh, now in this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So again, this is the Lord's tithe by way of command, Levite tithe, comes out of the category required giving. It's a taxation. It's not a free will giving. God says, do this. If you don't, you're robbing me. Do this and just trust me. I'll make sure that you're blessed if you're obedient to me. So again, in the context of the nation of Israel, you have this Levitical tithe, this, this tax, uh, the Levite tithe, the Lord's tithe. But that wasn't the only thing they paid. They also had a festival tithe, uh, in, and that's found in Deuteronomy 12. We won't take the time to turn there. But in the festival tithe was another annual 10% tax on grain, 10% tax on wine, 10% tax on oil, the first of the herd, etc., and so forth. And so what they did with this 10% extra tax is they take it to Jerusalem, and basically they'd have a big party. They'd have a big national potluck. It was a great festival. It was a national potluck. Uh, it supported the, the worship of the, of the nation. It promoted the perpetual community amongst God's people. And again, it was just a time of promotion of national unity, a time to come together in, in um, a social, um, cultural setting of the Jewish nation. And we do that all the time, right? We have potlucks every, all the time. It's just a, a time to come together and, and, and encourage each other. And, and, uh, so for Israel, that was the same thing. It's part of what made them. They were, they were God's people, so promoted national unity, just the riches of their, of their life as God, God's people, et cetera, and so forth. That's, a, that's the festival tithe. But there was also in the culture a third tithe, and this was taken every third year. So not every year, but every third year it mounted. So, so another 10% tax or 10% tithe, so it amounts to about 3.3% uh, per year. And it was basically known as the welfare uh, tithe. And again, just listen, Deuteronomy uh, 14, verse 28. At the end of the third year, you shall bring out all of the tithe of your produce of that year and shall deposit it in your town. And the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hand, which you do. Again, it's important. Every time God exercises a tax upon his people or exercises a tax upon his people, he always promises he's going to bless them. If they're just what? Obedient. If they're just obedient to him with their money, right? In order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands, what you do. So, so far we got three taxes going, right? We got the Levite tithe, you got the festival tithe, you got the welfare tithe or the poor tithe that I just referenced. First one supports paying the government uh, and its expenses. The second one was to cultivate national unity, national life. And the third one was to take care of the poor. So I'm not a big math guy. Help me out on this, right? We got 10% plus 10% plus 3 to third percent. So far, we are up to how much? 23%, right? And a third. Oh, but that wasn't it. That's not all. There happens to be a fourth tax. It's called the temple tax or the tabernacle tax. And according to uh, Exodus 30, uh, four, uh, verse 14, every male uh, Israelite, 20 years and older, had to make a contribution annually of a half a shekel tax. And that's still not all. There's two other taxes in the nation under the Mosaic Law. They're somewhat indirect taxes, but they are taxed. They're nevertheless a tax. Leviticus 19.9, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, uh, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, neither shall you uh, gather gleanings of your harvest, 
nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy, for the stranger. I'm the Lord your God. So harvest time comes, and, and you can go out and harvest your, your, your land and your field, but you had to leave some, right? You, you had to cut your field in circles. It's marked out in squares. You cut it in circles. You left the, 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 the corners. You drop some out of your bag. You just leave it on the ground for the needy and for the stranger. Exodus 23, verse 10 says, And you shall sow your land for six years and, and in its yield, but uh, on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Here it is. Why? So that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So if you have... Uh, you are to leave the, you work the land six years, the seventh land, you leave it and just let it lie fallow. Now, if you've ever done any gardening, you know that uh, where you have your garden, if you didn't touch it the, the next year, you know what happens when you don't even want something to happen. You go out there and volunteer plants are growing everywhere, right? You've got tomatoes and watermelons and corn and potatoes, etc. They just grow every, every year, they just come up voluntarily. And so that, that's this, this uh, next tax. It's, it's a provision. Um, the Lord said, look, with these two taxes, leave the gleanings in your fields, uh, in your vineyards for needy, for the stranger. Let your land lie fallow for a year and whatever voluntarily comes up, let it be a blessing to those who are poor and then to, to the beasts. So now we've got six taxes on the table. And when you look at these six taxes, you're probably looking at somewhere between 23 to 25% of the annual income going out in taxation, funding government, encouraging national life, providing or national life together, providing welfare system for the poor and for the stranger. Now, this is all required giving. It comes under that, that heading. We haven't even considered the issue of free will giving, which is on top of required giving. Now, the tithe discussed in the Old Testament, again, is not free will. It's a required taxation. And the tithe really has no New Testament parallel for the church. The tithe has no New Testament parallel for the church. The tithe is a form of taxation uh, ordained by God, commanded by God to carry out and to support governing authorities in the nation of Israel. The United States is not the nation of Israel. The church is not Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The tithe really has no New Testament parallel. This is something God did under the nation of Israel. And the reality is it's much more than just the 10% that we so often think when we think of that word tithe. Because again, in the nation of Israel, this is somewhere between, at the moment, 23 to 25% of annual income. So again, Paul says, because of this you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. So that's the Old Testament. That's under, that's under uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? What, what about taxation there? Now, obviously, in the New Testament situation, we understand Israel is occupied by, uh, by the Romans. Therefore, when it comes to the issue of taxation, the nation of Israel is still under Mosaic law. Therefore, the tithe in that 23 to 25%, <clears throat> as you add them all up, that's still required along with the temple tax. On top of that, all of the taxes levied by Rome. And, and the Roman government was exceedingly harsh with their taxation. Al Alfred Edersheim, uh, the famous uh, historian, says this. He says, The Roman taxation which bore upon Israel with such crushing weight 
was systemic, cruel, relentless, and utterly regardless. I mean, the Romans didn't care. The Romans had all kinds of taxes. They don't care how much damage it causes to anybody. The Romans had a poll tax or an income tax. Uh, they had a ground tax, property tax. They had a tax on slaves, a tax on income. There was a tax on duties, on imports and exports. They taxed uh, uh, things, transportation on public highways and seaports. There was a taxation on bridges and roads. There was a duty on anything bought and sold uh, in, in towns. So again, the Romans didn't really care how much impact, negative impact or punishment, harm it might inflict upon people as long as they got their money because that's what they wanted. So in the context of the time, there's a tremendous burden, taxation, by the Jews and everybody, but especially here on the Jews, we'll think about what they were under in the Old Testament, uh, by, by the Romans. So again, the Romans are still, uh, the Jews under the Roman authority, still under uh, obligation of the Mosaic Law. Therefore, they had to pay their tithe. They had to pay their temple tax. And again, a, a, on top of whatever the uh, Romans extracted from them. So look over in... Um, Matthew chapter uh, 27, it's kind of interesting, or Matthew 17, I'm sorry. Matthew 17, kind of interesting story. Jesus is going to give some instructions on paying taxes. Matthew 17, verse 24. And they're going to come to Capernaum, and Capernaum is where Peter lives. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, that tax right here is not from the Roman government. It's a temple tax. And as soon as Christ and his disciples arrive in Capernaum, <laughs> the tax guys show up. Hi, we're from the IRS and we're here to help, right? The, 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 the tax guys show up and they want their money. Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? We need your money right now. I mean, we just got in town. We even got in our clothes off. We're in the hotel. We just need your money, right? Now, two drachmas is equivalent to a two days wage. And if Jesus didn't pay taxes, the officials had the authority to make compensation out of his personal belongings. They just take, take his stuff. Now, the coin that was required was not common in that day. So it wasn't unusual for two men to go together to pay their tax with one coin. And that coin was called a stater, S-T-A-T-E-R which is equivalent to two drachma. So what did Jesus do when the tax guys showed up? Answer, he paid his taxes. He paid his taxes, albeit a little bit more perhaps unusual than anybody in the room pays their taxes, but he paid his taxes, right? Look at verse 27. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So, Peter, I want you to go fishing. Tax guy shows up. I want you to go fishing. And you catch your first fish, open his mouth, and there's going to be some money that we're going to use for the temple tax. Now, go back again and look at verse 24. Read, read what it says, what goes on before this fishing expedition. When they come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Peter says, well, no, actually he doesn't. He doesn't believe in tax. He's opted out of the tax system. Uh, he doesn't have the money. He doesn't do that. He doesn't pay. He doesn't say that, right? What, what's Peter's answer to the question? Verse 25, he said, yeah. Jesus pays his taxes. Verse 25 continues. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? 
Verse 26, and upon this he said from strangers, Jesus said consequently, the sons are exempt. That's a fascinating interaction between um, Peter and Jesus here because obviously in the context of the story, Peter hadn't told Jesus what had just happened. But Jesus knew what had just happened because Jesus is God in the flesh. So Peter had just met the tax collectors. He, he walks through the drawer, and then Jesus says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect custom or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, sons are exempt. Now what Jesus is saying is that here at the time, the rulers of the day took taxes from everyone except their own family. They don't take it from their own family. That uh, seems uh, reasonable. You don't tax yourself and then put the money back in your own pocket, right? And, and so he gets that. The temple tax was supposed to be what? For the purposes of the house of God. And since Jesus is the son of God, it's not really required of him to pay the tax. But he doesn't want to be an offense, he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the rulers. That's why he makes the statement in verse 27, but lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw out a hook, take the fish that comes out, and when you open his mouth, you'll find a stater. Take and give it to them for you and me. Now, you can't overlook the obvious here. You can't overlook the background of the story. I said that Jesus was in the process of instructing his disciples, but I didn't tell you what he was instructing his disciples about. That's kind of the key here. So look back up at verse 22. Verse 22, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So Jesus is instructing them about his soon coming death. And not only did Jesus give his money to the temple tax, which as the Son of God, he really was not under any obligation to do. He also gave his money to this apostate religious system and these apostate religious authorities that are going to ultimately execute him. Because it would be these same religious authorities that would take 30 pieces of silver from the treasury and would pay Judas to betray Jesus. So if you kind of fast forward this whole thing into the modern day and the modern discussion where you have some Christians saying they don't pay their taxes, they won't pay their taxes because they're asking, being asked to give their money to something that they won't support, I guess the question should be asked, well, what did Jesus do? An apostate system. He paid his taxes. put the money into the treasury of the people who would eventually fund his betrayal, which would lead to his death. He gave his money to the rulers of the temple that it, he at one time had cleansed, two times in his ministry, he cleansed because of their, all, because of their unright, unrighteous practices of selling uh, and, and uh, turning the temple of uh, the house of God into a den of thieves. He gave his money, he paid the tax to this apostate a religious system, even though this temple is going to be destroyed in just a few years, just as he predicted. He paid the tax because taxation's from God. God ordained it. God established it. Christ paid his tax that was required so he would not become an offense to the religious leaders because he had no desire to confuse or cloud the issue 
over his real purpose of being in the world. I'm going to say that again. Jesus had no desire to confuse or cloud the issue over his real purpose of being in the world. He didn't want to start a tax revolt. He didn't want to offend the authorities, thereby taking the focus off the spiritual purpose for why he came into the world. Same issue for us. When it comes to dealing with government and rulers and authorities and taxes, we have to be careful not to place too great an emphasis being upset, uh, being upset or protesting over all of these uh, issues, including our taxes and rulers, thereby clouding the view of the spiritual dimension and purpose for why Christ has left us here in this world. Did I say earlier tonight that we are ambassadors of Christ? And we have one message to this world that is in rebellion against the sovereign God. We have been sent with this one message that the sovereign is offering to this world in rebellion peace. He's offering you peace. He's offering you mercy versus punishment that's found only in the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the message. That's the mission. And we can't let temporal things cloud that, that which is much more important, the eternal things and the eternal purpose for why God has left us in this world once we come to faith in Christ and not just translated us up to heaven. One last issue before I'm done here on the issue of taxes for this evening in the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 15. And it's Passion Week here. It's Wednesday. Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees at the temple. They're trying to set a trap for him. They want him to speak against Rome. They want him to speak against paying taxes to Rome. You've got two groups of men that come together, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And these two groups hate each other. The Pharisees are anti-Herod because Herod is an Idumean. He's not a true Jew. They hate him. The Herodians want Herod in power because they just want to be part of that power uh, that he wielded. And, so, and, and they're pro-Roman. So you have these two political groups that are odds with each other, and they come together with the purpose of trying to trap Jesus because they want to eliminate him. They're trying to get Jesus to say something along the lines of protesting the paying of taxes to Rome because then if he would do that, then the Herodians would, would report him back to the Romans and, and Jesus would be seen as an insurrectionist. And he'd be dealt with harshly by the Roman officials. So again, Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. The Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him and what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. That, that's false flattery, right? It's just false flattery. Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give poll tax to Caesar or not? So the Pharisees wanted him to say something along the lines of, well, no, you don't, you don't pay your taxes to that apostate government. Uh, Caesar, I mean, he's crazy. Caesar thinks he's God. You, know, you pay your taxes to them, then you're supporting 
what they do. You're supporting him and his idolatry. What the government does in their idolatry. You're just as guilty as the government is for, for all the crimes that they're doing, all the sin that they're promoting. Uh, if you uh, give him your, your tax because you're helping to fund the whole thing. That's what he wanted them, or that's what they wanted him to say. Again, they wanted to report him back to the Roman officials because they wanted to do away with him. But what did Christ say? Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice. He says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And he said to them, Caesar's. Then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar means to give back, give up. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So, again, Christ is saying we give to Caesar that belongs to him, those things that belong to him. Here in the context, it's his taxes. We give God the things that belong to him. In the context from us to God, it's, his, it's our duty to worship him and to adore him and to serve him in our, in our obedience. We give him our obedience. We give him our love, everything that he commands. Paul says what? Pay your tax. Pay your taxes. Do what is right. God has ordained authority. He has ordained government. God has set taxes as required giving for the promotion and the work of government. Again, he has ordained established government to keep society together, support the good, punish evil. He's ordained taxes to be the means of carrying out the function of government. And when we pay our taxes, we are in a true sense supporting God's ministry. Because he, again, is the one who's ordained government. He is the one who's ordained rulers to be his ministers. We're not talking about what evil men do. <laughs> Newsflash, guess what evil men do? Evil, there you go. And they do only evil because there's None righteous, no, not one. Did I say in this whole study so far that we probably need to keep our focus off of men and on God because God is really the issue? The sovereign of the universe, even over evil governments, evil rulers, he even uses a guy like, the, like Pharaoh and the religious uh, uh, um, uh, authorities in the murder of Christ to bring about the greatest good because he's sovereign. So that's just one heading about money in the Bible, required giving, uh, taxes, tithing, if you want. Lord willing, if we have an opportunity next week, we'll look at free will giving. And, and again, we'll look at this issue of tithing, how it's really not a New Testament context. Uh, there's not really a New Testament concept. And, and I'll, give you, I'll give you a little heads up. You want to know what it is? Should I give you the punchline? And then you can come back and see how I filled it in. God doesn't want 10%. He wants all of it. That's it. He wants all of it. He wants all of, all of you, all of your possessions. He wants your heart, your mind, your soul, and those pieces of paper in your pocket. Because he wants your heart. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to get together this evening. We're thankful for your word. Thank you for the sweetness of our fellowship. Thank you for my brother filling in for me this morning so we can enjoy time with our, our family and our son and just pray your blessing upon his family and your blessing upon our fellowship. We thank you for the great grace 
that you continue to show us as uh, Cornerstone Bible Church. We're thankful for that. May you be honored in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.